Welcome to episode number one. <laughs> I got tongue tied. I can't even say the numbers. Welcome to episode 193 of CXO Talk. I'm Michael Krigsman. I'm an industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk. CXO Talk brings together the most innovative people in the world, people who are shaping important parts of our world. And today we are talking about a very important topic, which is gender diversity and the relationship between inclusion, gender inclusion, and business outcomes. I'm so thrilled that my friend Naomi Bloom is going to be hosting this episode. And Naomi is truly one of the most influential analysts, consultants in the world on HR and HR technology related topics. And so Naomi, a warm welcome to you. Thank you very much, Michael. I'm delighted to be here. Naomi, please uh, just very briefly share with us your, your background so we have some, some context, some understanding of who you are. Sure. I've really lived the gender diversity uh, experience because I started out as a computer programmer when there really weren't any and have, you know, come right along, run my own business since 87. And uh, if you were to ask me what the point is, the point is to save the world from bad software. Okay, to save the world from bad software. And our guest, who, with whom Naomi is going to be having the bulk of the conversation today, is Pat Milligan, who is a, an executive at Mercer, which is one of the largest HR consulting companies in the world. And Pat, a warm welcome to you. Thank you. To CXO Talk. Thank you, Michael. Thank, great to see you both. And hi, Naomi. Pat, I'm so delighted we could do this and that Michael's given us the opportunity because gender diversity and using gender diversity as a driver of business outcomes is a passion for both of us. Can you Absolutely. tell us a little bit more about Mercer and, and your role there? Sure. Mercer, I think many of you may not be familiar. Mercer is uh, one of the largest human resource uh, consulting firms in the world. But if you really cut through it, you know, we've got, you know, we've got people all around the world that really focus on the health, the wealth, and the careers of about 110 million employees. Um, we work primarily with organizations, helping them shape their people, HR programs, and strategies to ensure that their employees um, thrive, both from a health perspective, financial security, and careers. Uh, I've been at Mercer for about a decade. I've had the pleasure of leading our global talent business. I've run the North America region. But in the last uh, two years, uh, something that's been a personal passion of mine, um, women in the workforce, um, took on a business and commercial structure for us called When Women Thrive. So I've been leading our efforts on When Women Thrive and all of our work with multinational clients. When I hear you say When Women Thrive, I fill in the rest of that phrase as When Women Thrive, Everyone Thrives. Is that really the thrust? You know, look, I, I will share that a lot of why we at Mercer and I personally have been focusing on the role and the shape of women in the global workforce is because um, for all of the great focus and attention and passion um, that many of the folks joining us today have, um, 
the world would thrive if women were actually more engaged in the workforce. But the data and the research shows that all the great work, Naomi, that many of us are doing is, is simply not moving the needle. So part of the reason Mercer really got involved was we had the honor of doing a lot of work with the World Economic Forum on the gender parity report. And a decade later, the data was quite alarming that based on all the great intentions and everything we are all doing, literally across the world and across industries, we were simply not, we are not moving the needle with both current and future representation of women. So if we back up for a moment, let's talk a little bit about the research that shows the connection between gender diversity and improved business outcomes. Let, I mean, it's not just our good intentions. There's a real business connection here. Yeah, certainly. Look, I mean, we'll, we'll spend, well, maybe we'll, we'll unpack it, Naomi, into two pieces. One is, um, let's talk a little bit about what is, you know, for those of you that don't know Mercer as well, we are data wonks, right? Big data, large data, actuarial investment, health. But one of the things we really saw was that a lot of what was out there from a gender perspective was a point in time. It wasn't helping organizations really step back and say, if I really don't believe that the trajectory I'm on for getting women throughout my organization is where I want to be, what can I really do to change the future trajectory of the women in my workforce? So the research that we did, um, actually, first and foremost, it's truly uniquely global. It covers about 700 companies, four, uh, 700 organizations, 42 countries, but it, the powerful thing is it looks at the it looks at the shape of women in the workforce, about 1.3 million women. And why and what was also important to us was it was actually the predictive ability of this research. We were able to look at how women come into the workforce, how they get promoted, why they stay and why they leave. And it really focuses very holistically on what are the things that organizations do that actually keep women in the workforce, get them promoted, get them paid fairly, and what can we do to actually influence the future? So it was very much the predictive and analytical ability to look at this, not emotionally, but very much from a data view to say what gets measured matters. And if you can't understand what is your problem? Why are your women leaving? Why are they not getting promoted? And, and candidly, where do they have a pay equity problem? Then you can't solve the problem. So that was very much our passion. And what about the other side of it, the business case for gender diversity? You know, look, I, I think so much has been said and done, Naomi, about the business case. But when we look across industries, and, and certainly we're going to talk a lot about the technology industry, but when we look at the life cycle of what are we really trying to influence, there's just no question that when you look at business outcomes through the lens of why do great technology companies, why are you seeing the kind of focus you're seeing from Silicon Valley and from all over, it's because they are acknowledging that the customer base is changing that women are the major consumers, and they're not just now the consumers of healthcare and financial services and other consumer products, but they're one of the fastest growing cadres of consumers of technology. So I think our clients are starting to understand 
that if you do not have women strategically integrated in product development and product management and innovation and sales, and you're actually selling to women, how can you predict how your customers are going to think and feel? So first and foremost, we're hearing a lot of our clients in the technology sector talk about customer intimacy, but then they're also talking about innovation. You know, there are, we could go through reams of data about how diverse and inclusive teams and cultures from an innovation and speed to market outperform homogeneous groups. So I think, Naomi, the great thing is we have very few organizations who actually now come to us and say, Pat, can you and your team build us a business case? What we have are great teams and leaders saying, I get it. I'm deeply committed to the business case. I get what I need to do. Help me understand why I'm making so little progress. So what could we do? I mean, when you're talking with one of your clients and they're asking you, how do I make more progress? What do you tell them? Well, look, let, let's, let me, let's step back and just talk at the macroeconomic level, because the first thing I, I say to organizations, and, and again, we have the honor of working with great companies, but we also have the honor of working with great countries. So share that, whether it's you know companies in the technology industry or, quite candidly, um, a great country like Japan. I mean, what we really do is help them understand Look, you know, if you can't increase the participation rates of women in the workforce, then if you look at your future GDP growth, economic growth and vitality, you will as a country be on an economic decline because you simply do not have the workers, what we call worker replacement ratios. In a country like Japan, if they cannot figure out how to bring more women in, both as workers and consumers, they will actually shrink as an economy. So at a very macro level, we look at this, Naomi, and say, look, we're talking about an asset, right? An economic asset. Women represent, the women, educated women not in the workforce represent a, G, a potential GDP increase of about 12 trillion. Now, I'm not an actuary, but that's a super big number, right? So at, the, at a macro level, you know, you talk about those kind of numbers, but then companies actually now look at their own economic issues and say whether it's, what am I missing in terms of customer growth? What am I missing in terms of my ability to really shape the agenda in my organization? The good news is we don't spend a lot of time anymore on the business case. What we really focus on is Who's passionate about this? So part of what you and I can talk about is, you know, we often are in situations where, and, and I know there's a diverse group on the phone, you know, you can have a great CEO, super passionate about this topic, but if his or her leadership team and managers and people managers and supervisors don't care about this issue, nothing will happen. And hopefully we can talk a little bit more about the role of men, which we spend a lot of time on. Pat, let me, let me circle back to something we were talking about sure. a moment ago. Um, we know that the technology industry um, has really uh, been spending a lot of time and energy and thought and effort on this topic. But today, every company is a technology company. That wasn't true years ago. Today, it is absolutely true. Absolutely. And so what was perhaps a shortage of women in senior technology roles Yes, a problem, sure, but just for those companies, now it's a problem for everyone. 
And to the point that you were just making, there's a talent pool out there that we cannot afford to waste. Absolutely. And, uh, your point about Japan is an interesting one because from my reading, women do, educated women do enter the workforce, but at the point of childbearing, leave and often don't return. Is that a problem across the world or is that unique? So, so just like anything, it's complicated, right? So, so we could spend, you know, we could spend a lot of the time on this talk about childcare, but what we will say is, you know, it's a, it's a combination of what are truly the programs and policies that countries and companies have, but then who takes advantage of those policies and what is the culture? So if you compared why are we seeing women deeply and truly thrive in the Nordics, right? If you look at where do we actually think we are truly going to see some form of gender parity and could be in my lifetime, high probability that we will see it in Denmark, in Sweden, in Norway. Why? Because men and women take equal advantage of leave, of paternity leave, of work remotely, of flex work. So the culture embraces this as a, as a people and family issue, not a woman issue. I think it's fair to say if I had colleagues on from Japan and some of the, some of the uh, organizations we work with, it's, they've done everything. They've legislated, they have great you know, mandates on childcare, but the culture hasn't caught up with the economic imperative. So you can have the CEOs of great companies and some amazing Japanese multinationals very focused on this, but the culture isn't really aligning and the men aren't embracing yet the strategy. So I, you know, we've got to get men much more involved in this. And I think that's worthy of us unpacking a little. I mean, I think in the technology industry, one of the things we worry about is many of the next generation, the millennial men we hear from, really need to understand that this isn't that women win and they lose, right? It's that these great companies, in order to grow and prosper, need all the men they have. They just need a lot more women. So part of what we try to do is get the men involved much, much earlier. I have a, a phrase called men matter, and it, they really do. And so when you give them a chance to get involved, they will say, you know, Pat, why are you just talking about diversity as a women's issue? Why are you not allowing us to participate? And we have, so, a, um, we, sure. we, we have a question from Twitter uh, from Arsalan okay. Khan, who asks whether or not the, uh, it's gender, dis whether or not gender disparity is the cause or effect of uh, pay gaps and differences among, among men and, and women? So, so my God, a couple of things. I mean, um, we have been prosecuting pay equity for a decade, right? So, so one of the things I would just share is I think that companies are doing a better job measuring, monitoring, and remediating pay equity than they actually are female representation. So I, you know, we could, we could talk for hours about why, but I think things like pay equity are easy to assess. They're actually quite easy to measure. One of the things we're seeing in technology, and real kudos to this, into this industry, 
is a much bolder view that that being transparent about pay equity, measuring it and reporting it helps you solve the issue. Um, we're taking it out of, so to speak, the general counsel closet. So you're seeing technology saying, you know, a great, I'll just, I won't use company names, but the number of phenomenal publications that have been done in the technology industry, publicizing where are they in pay equity? We're at 96%, 97%. I am thrilled to see industries say, we're not only measuring it, but we're sizing our gap and we are working diligently to understand are there particular roles, are there countries, where are we falling behind and what is the root cause? And that I will comment on. One of the things we truly see in pay equity is that the biggest root cause is that women fall behind um, from a promotion perspective when they, certainly when they go on maternity leave, but they often step out of what we consider to be the most important sales, product development, and P&L jobs because of the pressure of raising a family or elder care or other issues. So um, I'm actually quite pleased that pay equity is taking on more than just a legislative and regulatory. It's becoming a passion of executives. They want their all of their populations paid fairly. Pat, you mentioned two things, two dots I want to connect. One sure. being this issue of women continuing culturally to bear a primary responsibility for child rearing, elder care, and so forth. And I realize that's going to vary with, with cultures around the world, but it is still a fairly dominant trend. The second thing is that um, if there aren't enough women like you and me in positions um, of some responsibility in a company, then often the senior male executives don't have the experience of working with senior women. And that's why I think it's so important that men not see this as she wins, I don't, but rather Absolutely. we all win together. And I think that comes out of working together, gaining the experience. Um, are there some programs that are particularly helpful with giving rising men and women as they come up the career ladder the opportunity to really collaborate? Yeah, look, I think, I think Naomi, it's a, it's a great question. And, and one of the things I would just offer is what really came out of our research is I wish I could tell you that there's a single lever, a single program or a single policy that moved the needle. But I'll just give you the framework of what our research showed. I mean, what was fascinating was it showed that really, you know, it, it's, it's actually the heart and the mind of this problem that has to come together you know, we, we saw very clearly that at an individual level, there were three things that absolutely drove future representation of women. And it was, did the leaders in the organization, were they personally passionate about this issue? I.e., they'd either invested heavily in it, they had real good experiences about what happened when you had diverse teams, so that there was a passion that was authentic, right? Very authentic. And it was personal to them. They personally looked at, here's my product development team. Why do I not have women, uh, women, people of color, Hispanics? I will not allow you to actually go forward with a homogeneous team. So they made it personal and then they persevered like hell. I mean, they just measured it. They looked at it every year. 
So those three things, am I with people who are really passionate, they're personally authentic, and boy, oh boy, do they persevere. And every time we prosecute this, they help us move. But that alone, that wasn't enough. I mean, what we really saw was that what you were seeing in the tech sector, this notion of proof, show me the data, show me analytically and unemotionally your workforce analytics, show me the representation of women, how many are we hiring, who gets promoted, why are they leaving? So proof and analytics was critical. And then one of the things we saw that unconscious bias comes in all those HR processes. Why do women get higher performance ratings but get promoted at half the rate of men? So, you know, I, I just want to make sure that I could talk about a single program, but the companies who were really moving the future basically had a great approach to this. They had the personal agenda and they had leaders who were super authentic, but then they really were very clear that I'm going to run this the same way I run sales or the way I run. It's a core business process. It's not some leader of diversity sitting out in a cube. It's hugely integrated in how we think about our business. And that's what gives me hope is the way I'm seeing business executives. You think about technology, it's been the sales and marketing leaders, some of the product development folks, customer service who've been the chairs of these women's efforts, um, not just HR and not just the chief diversity officer. So I don't know if that framework helps mm -hmm. and we can unpack it, but it really, because uh, people call us, me and say, should I put in a new paternity benefit? Well, not really. Like you should actually understand why your women are leaving. And one of the things we, I'd love to talk a little bit more about is in the technology sector, it's all about recruitment. If you really look at what is the single biggest issue we have, it's the attraction of women at larger numbers into the industry because we are not bringing women in in large enough numbers. We're actually promoting them well, and they're not leaving in some industry, in, at, like in some industries at twice the rate of men. But for whatever reason, we aren't appealing enough to women like yourself, you know, 20 or 30 years ago to say, I can make a career in this industry. So we've got to actually work on how to make the industry more attractive to women and make it more open and hospitable. And really, Pat, this goes back into the educational pipeline. It goes back deep into the childhood of boys and girls, because early on, we start without even realizing it sometimes targeting little girls in one direction, targeting boys in another. The biases that we carry unconsciously influence every step of that journey so that when we do try to hire out of computer science programs or information systems programs, there aren't enough women to go around. Absolutely, absolutely. We're seeing some of the tech companies are really starting to take this on and, uh, you know, get involved with high schools, get involved with uh, uh, junior highs. Um, are you seeing some of that as well? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that one of the things that is very clear is that as you think about the future of talent acquisition and you think about how are we framing and shaping um, the worker of the future, it's there's no question that we are seeing our clients actually change their whole talent acquisition strategy 
to say, I need to target schools and I need to target programs where I can really get women and other diverse populations to believe that they can thrive and be successful in our industry. And I think, Naomi, if we don't do that, we are not going to change the future trajectory. So again, uh, you know, having the pleasure of working with a lot of these great companies, what they're, what they're trying to do um, earlier on in terms of true sponsorship programs, intervening in the high schools and off, you know, one of the most successful things we're seeing is the intervention into the community colleges where we can really shape, you know, that whole conversation much earlier. So what, when we think about programs, a lot of what clients focus on are programs at work. They're not focusing on influencing the future talent acquisition. And that's a really important thing we're consulting on, which is you have to change the way you think about talent and recruitment to influence the supply because you are simply not creating enough women and other minorities that feel comfortable in the industry. I don't know if that helps, but it, I, I think it's important that it's not just the classic Very HR programs. It, it feels like another dimension to this is organizations being willing to do some development because when they, when they do have people already on board, um, there is a tendency to look for the perfect fit. You know, and women, not all women, of course, but many women won't step up for something unless they feel fully qualified, whereas men will often sort of push themselves forward, even though they need some development. Um, the psychology of that is one thing, but the, the way the organization handles that is, is something where some development could really be helpful. Absolutely. So a couple of things. I mean, and again, you can, anyone who wants to download this can see this in our When Women Thrive research. A big section of our research was really around what are the unique competencies of women versus men? What is it that we systematically see women excel at? And one of the things I think companies have to think differently about is the way they define a role and a competency it's often very male focused. And even the way, so I'll, even the way we think, Naomi, about selecting resumes, right? One of the things we're really trying to do with the use of technology with great companies like Pymetrics and others is take the bias out of selection. Because what you really see are women write their resumes often with much more collaborative verbs. I, you know, I mean, I collaborated, I contributed, I bumped. Men write their resumes. I stormed, I normed, I accomplished, I... And so one of the things we're really seeing is often women are actually factored out of the talent pool because we do not actually take into consideration that there's a family of competencies that women have, you know, collaboration, you know, ability to communicate, live in ambiguity. One of the tools that we work on with clients is this whole internal network analysis. It's labor market analysis internally. And we find that women create much more diverse networks. They communicate and collaborate more broadly. We looked uh, for one of our large pharmaceutical clients, men communicate and cluster in tight communications and networks, women actually fan out. And so understanding is our competency model 
biased against women because um, so many of the things we value are traditional competencies like P&L management operations, as opposed to can we redesign these roles to make them really more balanced to play to some of the strengths of women, but then help them build those competencies of the future. I think, and it'll be interesting to hear, you know, at, at some of the technology conferences over the next six months, a number of the organizations, whether it's the Workdays, the SAPs, one of the biggest things we're seeing is the rethink of how they think about competency models to take the gender bias out. And I, I think that will really move the needle. Something Michael, else sure. Michael, sorry. Can I jump in sure. with a, a quick question here? Um, what, is, what is the difference between companies like Workday or like Salesforce, which emphasize inclusion and uh, comparable pay rates for compensation for women versus other companies? Is there a difference? Can you identify those? And it's a question for both of you. Um, if, if I could speak to that, because some very interesting things are embedded in what you're just asking. It, it turns out that the companies, like some that you mentioned, but there are many others, which make a real effort to retain their talented women through those childbearing and family building years, not letting them leave, but finding ways to accommodate, they are hanging on to some very talented women. I see it a lot in the HR tech community, but I'm sure it's happening elsewhere also. And once, once these women are sort of over the hump, that is, you know, their young children are in school, they're able to travel a bit, things get a little easier at home, they are intensely loyal to the companies that they're working for because they were given that opportunity. Yeah, I think, Michael, a couple of things. I mean, I, I do think this notion of true commitment to sponsorship, what you see in some of the companies you mentioned is that executives at all levels are really raised to sponsor women. So I think this notion of, you know, you don't just do your job delivering your numbers, delivering your sales, delivering that from a talent perspective, they built it into the culture that sponsoring diversity. And again, we're focused on women, but let's be clear. I mean, if you think about the future, the ability to attract and retain diverse populations, whether it be people of color, Hispanics, Muslims, I mean, we've got to actually get that diversity in these workforces. And so this notion of you know, these, what I call these, you know, we used to call them Naomi affinity groups, but the power of these business resource groups deeply, deeply sponsored by executives. So just on a personal level, I have been the, you know, as a senior executive at Mercer, I've been the executive sponsor of women at Mercer for five years. And why does that matter? Because women across Mercer and men see me actively engaged in understanding, look, what's our brand? Why are women coming here? Why do they leave? What is it we need to do? And this year, actually two years ago, I decided that it, I needed to have a co-sponsor and I picked a phenomenal guy um, who runs our global talent business and said, look, Ilya, you've got to get the men much more engaged in this. And he started an entire strategy on men matter. So he did phenomenal sessions with our male partners, with our uh, male executives. 
And we found out, Michael, a lot about men wanted a safe place to say, what's the deal with all this women's stuff? You know, why are we talking about this? I, you know, and, and when we showed them the data and said, you think you're doing a great job, but honestly, here's what's happening to your women. Here's where they fall behind from a pay equity to it, to a person. They were like, that is not acceptable. But you needed the men honestly saying, is it safe to talk? Like, I don't get why this is such an issue. I think I'm a really flexible supervisor. Well, actually, you're really not. You've never told the women on your team that they can work remotely one day a week. And I think, Naomi, you hit on it, that one of the most successful things we've seen are educating male supervisors. Because, Michael, one of the things we really see is there's a high correlation. When do women leave an organization? It's often the first time they have a male supervisor who is super uncomfortable saying, so, Pat, how's it going? You know, I've noticed, I know your mom's ill. I see you just had your second child. What can we do to make your life easier? Just the what can we do, that conversation doesn't happen. Yeah, this and is. And so I think if we all got more comfortable. This is, this is very interesting. We have about uh, just under 15 minutes left. And, and I hope that you'll both share your, your very practical and experienced advice for companies who are interested in creating greater gender inclusion and diversity. And what, what practical steps can they take? How do you do it? Well, well, look, Michael, I'm going to talk about this from a couple of levels. I mean, first and foremost, I want to talk to the men and women who are here that not, are not executives, are not in management, right? So the first thing I would say to women is ask the question. One of the most important things I do to coach women is ask the basic question, am I paid fairly? You know, can you tell me that I'm paid equitably? Can you tell me if I'm getting the kind of performance ratings that my male counterparts are? I actually think really understanding as an individual, get comfortable having the conversation. Most diverse populations don't. So I would say that the very practical things we say to clients are first and foremost, diagnose your root cause. You have got to understand in a, and not just at an aggregate level, if you're, you know, if you've got multiple regions and businesses teaching your executives how to diagnose what is the problem you have? Are you not hiring enough women? Are you not promoting them at the right rates? Are you actually losing them at certain career levels? Where are they falling behind? Absolutely critical that you got you know what problem you're trying to solve. So the first very practical thing is given the great developments in workforce and data analytics, it's really easy to figure that out. So get the data. Um, second thing we really say very practically is engage the key stakeholders. And again, not using jargon, but look, it just can't be the CEO, right? You need to find passionate leaders from the CEO to the senior executive all the way down the line and say, look, are you willing to make a personal commitment to lead and champion this issue? Not because it's the right thing to do, but it's because it's going to make your business and society more successful. So you need authentic people who actually can really lead and say, this is how this is going to make our business more successful. And then I really think you got to take action. You know, you've got to really say, look, there are a half a dozen world-class programs that we know make a difference. Sponsorship is critical. 
men matter programs, really making sure the two big things that we saw that had the biggest impact on future representation of women were health and financial wellness programs focused on women. So understand, are your women experiencing stress and the healthcare system differently? Do they need a different way to be educated financially? So we find that you know those programs make a huge difference, but then also make sure that you've got an infrastructure that's gonna let you persevere because one of the things certainly Naomi, you and I talk about is this can't be key person dependent. I am absolutely confident that if I left Mercer tomorrow or if Julio Portolatin left, we would continue to thrive on our women's agenda because we built the sustaining infrastructure. So diagnose your problem, get the right leaders, find out and weed out the people who are not authentic. I would honestly challenge you, if you have leaders who really don't believe this, I question why they're leading in this day and age, but then make sure that you really understand which of these programs that move the needle and absolutely make sure that you can persevere because you've got the right muscle. And I actually think we've got a lot of clients that are doing that. And Naomi, your, your, and Naomi, your thoughts as well. This is incredible. There's a lot, uh, such a wealth of knowledge you're both sharing. So your thoughts, Naomi, your well, advice. I was going to mention that the, te the HR tech community is very aware that a lot of our software has embedded biases. And there's a huge effort right. underway by a number of firms to root this out. So to Pat's point about resumes being written differently, um, uh, uh, performance language being used differently. We are looking to embed bias, sort of heat-seeking, bias-seeking language, assumptions, processes across HR technology uh, to make that technology as bias-free as we can do it. This is early days, but there's a lot of work going into that, and I think it will make a difference. A small difference, but it's terribly important. Actually, huge, Michael, huge difference. Uh, we have a financial services client that, in, that used this software to take out the bias selection words in their investment banking division, and over 18 months, they had a 40% increase in qualified resumes of women when they actually took what we considered to be very biased verbs and adjectives out of their their software selection. So that is something, Naomi, that the industry, I think, can really push and um, completely agree that it can change the trajectory very quickly. Well, how about we take another question from Twitter? And sure. Judy, and we have about five or six minutes left. So let's. Uh, so now let's. We'll have to do this a little bit more rapid fire because there's. We could talk about this, or you guys could talk about this for hours. Uh, so Judy Gambita asks, and I have got to put my glasses on here for this. Oh, and now I've got to find it in the list because Twitter scrolls. What about the he for she? He. Um, oh my God! I lost it. Uh, can you believe this? This is, this is what happens when you're doing live scrolling and you have a question and a tweet stream. So the pound he and he she, for she he for she yes yes is that yes. So what do you think about that and is it the right focus? And sorry for my fumbling around here. Okay, I don't think so. I look, I, you know, look. 
Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think if, if Judy, well, well but, but quickly, I mean, I think great organizations like the UN, you know, like the World Economic Forum, I mean, I think these programs make a difference. So whether it's he for she, whether it's the focus we're seeing now, the White House focus on pay equity, I look, they can't hurt, but change happens, no disrespect, but change really happens in great companies, um, whether they're large companies, small companies. So I'd say, Michael, that they don't hurt because they actually get attention, but I, I actually think it's very difficult for these not-for-profits to move the needle. I mean, we all have to move the needle as managers and leaders um, because um, we're the ones that actually have all the people. So um, I think they're, they, don't, they don't harm, but I don't think they really can move the needle as quickly as, as we would like. Others? Uh, there have been more. So we have, again, just a, a few minutes left. And getting back to, the, to this notion of very practical advice, um, Naomi, what are some of the other steps that companies can take? I, I get this question all the time. And um, I think one very practical step that companies can take tomorrow is to a point that Pat was making. They have to look beyond the aggregate data. They have to look at the data for individual managers, individual product lines, individual geographies, and so forth, because it's at that point of sale. It's with that manager where you change things. You change behavior. And to Pat's point, if you have some people on board who are really not with the program, managers who really don't believe in this and really aren't going to do it, then you need to get them out of the way. That's pretty practical. Yeah, I mean, so, uh, and so, Pat, how, how do you take that step? I mean, at what point? How do you know when That's you make great. that decision? You know, look, I think, Michael, one of the things we struggle with, certainly at Mercer, is you got to model it from the top, right? I mean, you really do. I think I have a tremendous amount of respect for our CEO, Julio Portolatin, because if I look at his exec team, you know, there were people when he came on board who checked the box, who said, you know, I'll do what I need to do because it affects my bonus or that. But they, but they're, you know, they're, the feedback from their people was they're not authentic. I never really see them rolling up their sleeves and helping move the needle. And actually our CEO eventually said, I don't care what you accomplish. Um, it's how you're doing it. And you are, you know, here's your people scorecard and you're losing your women at tremendous rates and, I can't have you in a people leadership role or a business leadership role. So look, it takes a lot for a leader, you know, to say your ability to drive that workforce, keep those diverse populations and women is a core performance attribute. If you, if you don't do that, you can't be a run, you know, run an entity in our organization. It takes a lot of guts to do that. And I, I think that's what we're starting to see. And you're seeing it more and more in the technology industry saying a, a core component of being a business leader is absolutely managing and driving a diverse workforce. But that's what we all have to thrive. You know, we have to really work towards, but it's, Na it's not easy and it's not for the faint of heart. Naomi, how many C CEOs are out there who would accept this, accept the notion of gender diversity as being a core part of our business and our business processes. I'd like to believe it was a large number, 
But in my experience, it's not nearly as large as it ought to be in 2016. We have just a couple of minutes left. And so, uh, Pat, why don't you share with us your final thoughts and advice? And Naomi, we'll turn to you for, for the yeah. same. Yeah, look, 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 I don't want to leave. I, you know, I'm hugely optimistic. I mean, I think, Michael, that's one of the things is that you look at this data and you could, it can be daunting and depressing, but I really think it's this notion that, look, it takes a village. We're all part of this village, but you can move the needle. If someone had told me a year ago, Naomi, we could take the bias out of selection through re-engineering software. So I, I do think if everyone can leave this call saying, given the role I sit in, what can I do personally? You know, what can I do to change as a leader? If I'm an individual contributor, what kind of questions can I ask about our organization? Um, I think that we will we will make progress. I um, do not think we will achieve equality. So I'm trying to find better words like parity and representation. But I don't want to leave the, the you know the talk saying it's hopeless. It's not hopeless. We can and we will make tremendous progress, but it's going to take all of us, all of us. So Naomi. Naomi, Look, you're going Pat, to get the final word. You and I have lived the progress that has already been made. We wouldn't Absolutely. be having this conversation if things weren't optimistic. Um, right. There's more work to be done. It may not be total parity on our watch, but it will happen because there's a lot of men and women coming behind us don't just believe in gender uh, uh, diversity, believe in the broadest possible definition of diversity. It's been encouraging to see it. Absolutely. Okay. Well, what a fast moving discussion we have had. And uh, I wish we had, I wish we had another hour to continue talking about it. You've been watching episode number 193 of CXO Talk. And we have been speaking on the topic of gender diversity with the host of today's show, Naomi Bloom, and our esteemed guest, Pat Milligan, who is a senior executive at Mercer. And Pat and Naomi, thank you so much for joining us and taking time today. Thank you for having us. It has been... It's been a lot of fun, and everybody, tune in next week where we'll have more incredible conversations on CXO Talk. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.